0: just this is hell manufacturing dissent since 1996 this is hell and what today's guests will be sharing with the class is definitely a dissenting opinion not that it should be close look at history would suggest the opinions that will be shared today should be instead the status quo knowing this history can give us all a better understanding of what is happening right now in Gaza. Israel and the West Bank. And even if you have studied the region, there may be something very important that you missed, something called Zionist revisionism. Within that revisionism, we can find the more fascistic, if you will, leanings of the Netanyahu administration, as well as previous far-right Israeli governments with this knowledge we may even be able to better understand to make sense of the nonsensical twisted logic behind the ongoing destruction of gaza and its people as al jazeera reported early this morning more than 100 palestinians last count i saw was 104 have been killed and some 700 others i've seen other numbers as high as 750 wounded after israeli troops opened fire on hundreds waiting for food aid southwest of Gaza City, health officials say, as the besieged enclave faces an unprecedented hunger crisis. The Gaza Ministry of Health said on Thursday, at least 104, there's the number, people were killed and more than 750 wounded, with the Palestinian Ministry of Foreign Affairs condemning what it has called a cold-blooded massacre. One witness said, we went to get flour, the Israeli army shot at us, there are many martyrs on the ground, and until this moment, we are withdrawing them. There is no first aid. Reporting from the scene, Al Jazeera's Ismail Al Ghul said that after opening fire, Israeli tanks advanced and ran over many of the dead and injured bodies. Al Ghul reports it is a massacre on top of the starvation, threatening citizens in Gaza. After we discuss that madness, and apologies for anybody who was offended by me Calling that madness Is a In a belated obit We will take a look At the history Of the late Henry Kissinger A past that When reconsidered Reveals a career Full of diplomatic blunders That led to events Like the 1979 Iranian hostage crisis The rise of Islamic extremism And made China A global power Challenging the U.S. On the world stage In a few minutes Returning to This is hell will be Infernal triangle Columnist At the American Prospect Historian Rick Perlstein, who recently posted the articles, the neglected history of the state of Israel, the revisionist faction of Zionism that ended up triumphing, adhered to literal fascist doctrines and traditions. We'll also be discussing his article he just posted. Kissinger revealed that the former secretary of state is responsible for virtually every American geopolitical disaster of the past half century. You can now find Rick's writing at Prospect.org. He is the author of a four-volume series on the history of American political and cultural divisions and the rise of conservatism from the 1950s to the election of Ronald Reagan. Those books include the New York Times bestseller, The Invisible Bridge, as well as Nixonland, a New York Times bestseller picked as one of the best nonfiction books of 2007 by over a dozen. Publications, Before the Storm Which won the 2021 Los Angeles Times Book Award for History And appeared on the best books of the year Lists of the New York Times, Washington Post Chicago Tribune, his most recent Book in that series is Reaganland Which was named a New York Times Notable book of 2020 Rick has appeared on This Is Hell several times in the past And you can find our most recent interviews with him At thisishell.com And they're all for free Follow Rick on X at Rick Pearlstein Producing Is Chris Cool fan Chris
1: Anything new by you Do you have any plans For the weekend uh, You know um, When I get into something I put my heart and soul Into it sometimes A little too much uh, Maybe I don't know If that's good or bad But uh broad right I I'm just rocking with Bring Chicago Home uh, Might have maybe If there's any Palestine rallies I might hit those up Maybe this weekend uh, But I did have An interesting experience With a, with a a person who I was, I was going door to door, and it was this Eastern European person who was just like, you progressives want to convert my grandchildren t- into being gay at school, and, <laughs> and, and, and chopping off their penises, whatever, I don't want my kids being transgender, and I just like to flip it around saying, because I know he's like a very religious right-wing, so I was just like, you support personal freedoms, you don't want to be converted to Catholicism and become a Muslim or Jewish, whatever, because he was Orthodox, an Orthodox Christian, and he was just like, no, I believe in my freedom of religion, da-da-da, so you want the government to tell people who to fall in love with, who to make love Love to or what gender they should be I mean if you, if you believe in personal freedom you would be staunchy behind that I mean I am because I believe in personal freedom how about you and I, I don't I didn't flip out of him I just had a shit eating grin on my face and he just looks at me and he was just like I a lot for me to think about I don't know I was so hopefully maybe it changed it for the better I don't know if I did or didn't but you know uh, that conversation kind of stuck with me throughout the weekend so I bet I bet that would stick with me for a while
0: as well I gotta turn up my headphones just a tiny bit there you go. So, uh, Rick, do you have any plans for the weekend? Buying carpeting. Really? Yeah. Wall to <laughs> wall.
2: Wall to wall carpeting. I mean, I'm not buying a rug. <laughs> the price is right. Yes, yeah, wall to wall carpeting. <laughs>
0: well, that sounds like coffee fun. Poppy
2: color, hopefully.
0: Really? <laughs> or will you be going to many stores? Is this going to be a tour of the uh, Chicago the suburbs? No,
2: we'll probably just hit um,
0: what you used to called Tiboni. Oh,
2: Tiboni! Whatever it was
0: called. Yeah, yeah. I love that place, over by Philadelphia Church. Which is at the beginning of, uh... Henry Portrait of a Serial Killer uh, from, uh, New Philadelphia Church was in that I got absolutely nothing going on this weekend And I cannot wait to start doing absolutely nothing oh, Exactly I know I will end up spending some time working on the show Probably having an anxiety attack about the show And working several hours on the show But, other than that
2: Got that stuff too
0: yeah so far more important than me ruining my own weekend by unnecessarily worrying about the show chris please remind us what is this week's question from hell from our listening audience which was written by a listener by the name of rick p and tell us how our listeners are answering that question in our discord
1: community this week's question from hell is why do birds suddenly appear every time you are near Oh, i can't hear chris
0: oh you can't hear chris all right We'll have to work on that a little bit later, see if we can figure that out. Oh, maybe it's I wanna know what oh, I know. Alright, well let's well, let's just get to the interview. So the person with our favorite answer to this week's question from hell wins their choice of whatever this is hell swag they want, swag they want. You can check out all of our merchandise right now by going to thisishell.com and clicking on support. You can give us your answer to this week's question from hell, and we will read it on air. All you have to do is post your answer under the announcement of this week's question from hell at our Facebook page, facebook.com slash thisishellradio, or at our Facebook group page Welcome to the Hell Hole, or you can direct message it to us via x at thisishellradio, or you can leave your answer in our discord community or on our facebook or patreon page if you are a subscriber at patreon.com slash this is hell. and we will be announcing this week's winner following our historic conversation with rick and you know what makes this interview historic you sad. are our first guest in the studio oh, wow. because we uh, moved in here on july 19th 2019 pandemic hit nobody wanted to come in into here we've had jeff dorchin doing his segments in here sometimes but that's the only time we've ever had a guest sit in here so uh congratulations and welcome to the studio coming up zionist past and kissinger's failures that nobody wants to talk about chris will share our patreon subscribers answers to this week's question from hell as well as the rest of your answers and we will be announcing this week's winner and uh, we'll tell you what's happening on friday's bonus podcast for patreon patrons at Patreon.com slash thisishell Oh and Chris will tell us who our confirmed guest Is for next week We have a lot of interview requests A lot of people we're working with for next week But only confirmed one guest so far Live from the United States Where our past has far too much influence on our present Whether we want to admit it or not This is hell I love learning And I especially love learning stuff That makes me think Previously held beliefs uh, Maybe may not have been so great The writing by today's guest has done exactly that, leading me to reconsider what I thought I knew, but in fact was not true at all. Here at This Is How, we hope that's what will happen for you that you can keep an open mind, consider what our guest says, and not dismiss it because of any previously held views or perspectives you may have had. I've been very purposely general and vague in the introduction of today's guest because I do not want to have to warn you with a spoiler alert because what I learned from our guest's writing that we will be discussing today and his past writing as well may just blow your mind as it did mine. Returning to This Is Hell And Chris, can you turn down The music? Returning to This Is Hell, Infernal Triangle Columnist at the Prospect, historian Rick Perlstein recently posted the articles The Neglected History of the State of Israel And Kissinger Revealed Let's start with your new Column. So you write that you are no Expert on Israel and politics uh, Their history and politics You ask that I get any If I get anything wrong here or if you Disagree, I want to hear from you at Infernal Triangle at infernaltriangleatprospect.org all these essays are conversations so why is it called Infernal Triangle and how have those conversations been going lately especially in light of your recent article on uh, Zionist revisionism uh as I was saying earlier, Rick is uh, he's our first guest we've ever had in our studio, and apparently our studio is not equipped to have a guest in the studio. So we've moved Rick over to the producer's okay. booth. Rick, you were giving us some case studies. You were mentioning uh, Mr. Friedman over at the New York Times. Uh, so what are the case studies that you were referencing?
2: Oh, I'm just moving so I can see you.
0: Yeah. <laughs> oh, Hey, how are you?
2: I'm in the control room. Um, <laughs> You know, every time since Jimmy Carter, (laughs) (laughs) smooth uh, segue. The Democrats, yes. You know, always you know put up these um, presidential candidates who promise that they're going to be super bipartisan, right? Right. New kind of Democrat. Mm -hmm. Yeah. You know, they're going to lean into austerity and you know get away from you know the you know New Deal traditions of our free spending ways, right? And every time. When one of these guys loses, the pundits say, "Oh, well, it's because you know they're still stuck in their free spending liberal ways, <laughs> right?" And then they, you know, like they nominate you know Michael Dukakis, who says that this, you know, this 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 his 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 um his slogan was better jobs at better wages, and and that he was a he was uh going to be about competence and not ideology. You know, and then when he lost, you know, like the 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 pundit said, you know, it was because he was, you know, this card carrying member of the ACLU. You know, Walter Mondale, and I skipped Walter, Walter Mondale. He said he was gonna, you know, cut taxes. I mean, raise taxes and balance the budget. And you know, he was attacked, you know, for being a, you know, a captive of the Democratic interest groups. And then, of course. Bill Clinton, you know, succeeded (laughs) at, you know, kind of, um, you know, the austerity program, but, you know, the media still despised him because he didn't go to their cocktail table uh, parties. And then, you know, Barack Obama, you know, decides he's going to what was it the the fiscal cliff right the sequester right so the democrats do these same things over and over again to kind of kowtow to the media demand that they get rid of their free spending liberal ways but the media always you know still you know repeats the same cliches that the democrats are losing because you know they're not in touch with the wisdom of the heartland and you know they're not centrist enough right so you know Meanwhile, the Republicans are becoming more and more extreme and more and more authoritarian. But because the genre conventions of you know, elite journalism have to kind of grant equal responsibility of the Democrats and the Republicans uh, for you know, the ruin of the country, um, basically, it's, it's, a, it's a form of bias towards the Republicans, right? It's like if one side is you know, more willing to lie, cheat, and steal. Right. And the other side behaves like Boy Scouts and you have to cheat, treat the side that you know, lies, cheats and steals, you know, uh, as equally responsible uh, for the morass as the Boy Scouts. <laughs> you know you're basically you know giving you know I, I call it the booster seat it's like the Republicans get to kind of sit in a be- booster seat like a kid you know at the at the, at the restaurant so right. and like see eye to eye with the grown-ups so you know when you look at these three things as kind of an interlocking system you kind of have a skeleton key for understanding you know what a, what America has turned into and that's what my most recent book is is called that I'm working on and it's called the infernal triangle and the, the subtitle which is you know completely driving me crazy because you can you know see my volume ambition is how America got this way yeah so I want to explain all of it so you know when I approached uh Dave Dian at the um prospect about possibly right. you know doing a regular a write some regular writing just to kind of um you know keep my hand in and you know have a regular you know revenue stream mm-hmm. um I, you know that that was the th- that was the theme I choose and 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 uh pretty much except for the um <laughs> except for the last two the 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 um The Kissinger one last week and the Israel one before that, uh, they've been focusing mostly on the media
0: yeah they've been really good you've got, there's a couple there was a two-part series that you did about the media that was really good right at the beginning you, you've been mentioning both sidesism you write that uh, Isaac Klotner, I guess is his name or Chotner Chotner um, yeah. of The New Yorker is the he's greatest a
2: nephew of uh,
0: Murray Chotner, the uh, Nixon
2: dirty trickster from the 50s Oh 50s. no kidding
0: yeah I was wondering where I saw that last name before. So uh, you say that uh, he's the greatest interviewer alive. you commended him for his straightforward informational interviews and as you write especially these past few months, in which uh, Chotner has been meth- methodically flushing out all too shrouded facts of the inhumanity on the ground in Israel and Palestine from all sides. So there's all sides as opposed from both sides. But we're you know we're told that this both side you know, uh, you, you there's the criticism that was made against President uh, Trump's initial August twenty fifth, twenty seventeen response to the violent and deadly protests in Charlottesville, Virginia, where he said you also had people that were very. On both sides uh, Biden attacks him on that in his, uh, When he announces his presidential run In 2019 How does and, or How can anybody offer all sides Especially in a situation like Gaza And avoid charges Of both sideism How difficult is it to give all sides Without creating A false balance
2: that's a really interesting question if the first thing you have to do is get rid of the idea that there are two sides, <laughs> right? I mean, both sides, you know, I, I you know, it's like I'm, I'm such a University of Chicago guy, <laughs> right? It's like I'm such a theorist, you know, I write, you know, very accessible stuff for the public. But at heart, you know, I'm always, you know, kind of getting at the conceptual categories behind the conceptual categories, right? And, you know, if I, if I, you know, I've been more successful than some people at seeing stuff, it's just because I'm always being, you know, kind of ruthlessly critical about the categories, the terms we use. And, you know, I mean, you have to realize both sides is a metaphor, right? I mean, it's not, there's not like two sides to every question. There are millions of sides to every question, or there are as many sides to every question as we decide to frame there being sides of every question, right? So, you know... Within the American context, since we have two political parties, you know, this ready kind of uh, metaphor that, you know, like there's a Democratic side and a Republican side, uh, you know, first of all, um, you know, there are many Republican sides and there are many Democratic sides and there are sides that are neither Democratic nor Republican, right? But the the both sides metaphor in american politics is atrocious because it always presumes, you know, a symmetry, a polarity. You know, think of a barbell, right? And, you know, whenever someone says, you know, the problem with america is polarization, right? Um immediately you know they're just int- introducing like a profound distortion you know sometimes even a lie into the discourse right because the democratic party you know for all its faults is you know a pretty pluralist diverse political party it has you know leftists it has centrists uh, it has empiricists right i mean like the biggest you know uh, tendency of democratic office holders is to say let's look at a problem in a t- you know in a technical way and solve it Right, it's it's a pretty anti-ideological political party. It's one of the least political. I say it's a, in the book. I say it's one of the least partisan political parties in 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 the world. Right, whereas the Republican Party is ruthlessly ideological. You know, it's Leninist, and it's you know the way that it kind of sees. You know these kind of fifty-year goals, like you know getting something, get, getting rid of something, like Roe versus Wade or the administrative state. You know stuff that's been going on for generations and generations. It has a dynamic which tends towards ever greater authoritarianism because there's always a purity test, right? I mean, they have phrases like Republicans and names, name only. Before that, they were called squishes. So you know everything within the political culture of the Republican Party. You know is a dynamic that turns it in a more authoritarian direction. So immediately this idea that the Democratic and the Republican parties represent two poles of a phenomenon is just a terrible metaphor. It's not a picture of reality, right? So, you know, uh, half the time, you know, when you listen to kind of, you know, national public radio news, when they say, um, you know, Congress is the problem, they mean Republicans are the problem. People recognize this, right? People see it when I describe it and they say, wow, that more readily matches the world as I see it. You know, the first column was called You're Entering the Infernal Triangle and it just exploded. It got like, you know, 8,000 shares, you know, on the internet. And, you know, one of the things I did in that column was, you know, I explained, you know, this idea of, you know, kind of the booster chair, right? I gave examples going back to the 1960s of the presumption that the Republican Party is going to become a centrist political party because there's this idea that you know the normal ground state of America is kind of you know this you know centrist United country, even though you know America is much more violent and strange and vicious, and that kind of uh, vision you know allows us to understand, right? Um, so you know, if you want to know you know why we're on the verge of you know fascism and dictatorship in America, you know the fact that people just do not have an accurate picture of reality as delivered by the media they consume every day is just a huge part of the story.
0: So you mentioned that what you uh, call one of Chotner's best interviews, Ramsey. Oh, and past- and
2: that's another th- that's the thing. As far as you know, um, the Chotner thing, I mean, sometimes. You know, uh, a metaphor of you know both sides actually <laughs> kind of makes sense, right? So I mean, there are two sides, you know, in 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 the, the conflict in Gaza and you know and 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 uh, Israel. I mean, there's there's Hamas and there's you know the IDF, the Israeli Defense Forces. And you know, what I wanted to just point out, you know, when I was talking about you know Chotner's portrait of what's going on in Israel in his interviews is, you know, I just linked to a great. um um interview he did with a, a UN investigator who points out that Hamas did use rapes as a weapon of war you know in their in their atrocities on October 7th and you know that gets into another can of worms which is that there's a lot of kind of uh, atrocity denial going on among you know some people on the left not certainly not everyone so when i said you know like i just kind of added that as an afterthought to just you know kind of chatner points out terrible stuff on both sides but just saying you know that was my way of saying he's he's an honest broker in this stuff you know.
0: And you write that uh, he interviews a leader of the militant West Bank settlement movement who told him that Jews have a sacred duty to occupy all the land between the Euphrates in the East and the Nile and the Southwest, that nothing west of the Jordan River was ever Arab place or property, and that no Arabs, even citizens, should have civil rights in Israel. Stunning stuff and extremely valuable to have on the record, especially given the settler movement's close ties to Benjamin Netanyahu's government. Is Israel unique in having that kind of a national myth? Does every nation have a national myth and does defense of those myths always necessarily lead to divisiveness, if not violence?
2: I uh, wrote about a certain political tradition in Israel called revisionist Zionism. And revisionist Zionism was a movement that basically began in the early 20th century in in Poland, right? And it came out of this kind of crucible of uh, thinking about nationalism that was kind of very romantic, right? And it was this idea that, you know, there were these natural things called nations, right? That there were were peoples, that they were distinct, the one from the other. And, you know, this was a pretty new idea because, you know, uh, nations, you know, were kind of relatively new, you know. There were empires, you know. There were you know, kind of little fiefdoms, you know. But the idea of these kind of very specifically bounded areas that had one one government, right, and that tried to kind of create these, like you say, national myths that made us, you know, kind of all united and all kind of part of the same project, right? I mean, you see it kind of when the war war between Russia and Ukraine, you know, Ukraine saying we're a nation. You know, Russia is saying, no, you're not a nation. This part is Russia and da-da-da-da-da, right? So this, it's, it's, it's this kind of very messy, this kind of very strict kind of clamp on a very messy situation. But this is basically the way we organize the world, right? Um, and out of this kind of uh, heyday of nationalistic thinking, Jews you know, scattered all over the world uh you know said well we should have a nation too right everyone was saying we should have a nation too right armenians are saying we should have a nation you know kurds are saying we should have a nation you know even like you know italy i mean it's really shocking how late in the game you know a real italian nation state that covered up the whole boot you know um you know became a viable idea you know i spent some time in rome last year and basically the, the reason, you know, the, 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 the first king of the nation state of Italy made Rome the capital was basically a, a deal to get them to say we're part of Italy, right? So, I mean, all this stuff is kind of was, you know, very contingent, right? And, you know, the people who were saying the Jews need a nation state uh, were a very fractious bunch, Right. And basically, by the 1920s, they fell into two factions. And one of the factions, the labor Zionists, were actually, you know, came from this kind of left socialist tradition. A lot of them were secular. And uh, their rivals were these people called the revisionists. And they... Uh, Basically, the labor Zionists, you know, which is super weird, you know, saw themselves part of this as, as this kind of global proletarian movement, which is kind of surreal because it's also a nationalist movement, super complicated and strange. But the other people, the revisionists, basically drew the same sources of inspiration as the Italian fascists, as the Spanish fascists, as the German fascists. This idea that the Old Testament was the chronicle of a great nation of military conquerors, right? that Jews had this kind of mystical connection to this place, Israel, and that we had to conquer it, you know, through military might. And the guy who was uh, the leader of this faction, Zeb Jabotinsky, was a really weird guy who had some really weird ideas. Uh, you know, i had been vaguely aware of him. And i had been vaguely aware that, you know, part of Israel, you know, has this kind of um, fascist origin. And the thing that makes it so important to understand now is that one of Zeb Jabotinsky's close associates was a scholar named uh, uh um Benzion Netanyahu right the father of Benjamin Netanyahu so he was one of these people who you know basically quite explicitly adopted the idea that fascism was the best model for the for the Israeli nation and when Benjamin Jabotinsky died in 1940 the guy who took over his movement was this young militant named Menachem Begin, who, you know, is familiar to us because he became the prime minister and he actually signed a peace deal with Egypt. So he's kind of seen as a peacemaker, but, you know, you really have to know a a lot of Israeli history to know that he was actually also a terrorist, you know, he was the head of an underground terrorist army when, when, Israel was under uh, English occupation, right, in the 1930s and the 1940s. And in 1946, his group, the Irgun, blew up the hotel that was the headquarters of um, the British mandate in Palestine and killed 90 civilians, right? So, I mean, you know, I think a lot of a lot of Palestinians probably feel pretty gaslit, you know, when their national aspirations. Are thwarted by people saying, Well, you guys have too many terrorists, right? So this guy Menachem Begin, one of the reasons Eng- reasons England said we have had enough of this by 1948 was, you know, the harassment and terrorism of this group that you're gun. And then in, in Israel has its war of independence in 1948, and uh, Begin is a military leader, and you know, his troops in a place called Dariusin committed a massacre, you know, killed probably hundred people, raised the village and if you have the article in front of you you can see the, the the radio broadcast that he 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 said praising that massacre right so you know this is part of israel's heritage you know in the same way as i point out in the piece that you know the tulsa race massacre of 1921 is part of america's heritage right where you had this kind of prosperous a black neighborhood in Tulsa, Oklahoma, called Black Wall Street. And you know, uh, a black guy steps on the toe of a white woman in an elevator, and you know, he's lynched, and they raised that neighborhood. You know, hundreds of people died. The town fathers literally, you know, um, had airplanes fly over the neighborhood with 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 with, you know, like gasoline bombs, you know to set this massive fire. And you know, this part of American history, was repressed, you know, just like that part of Israel history was repressed, and then you kind of, you know, fast forward 100 years later, and a lot of these same energies, whether it's the people who, you know, kind of are responsible for the Tulsa race massacre, or you know, the revisionist tradition of um, Jabotinsky, through Benzion Netanyahu, through Menachem Begin, through Benjamin Netanyahu, you know, are in charge of their countries, right? And, you know, this is not to say that America is a fascist country, right? These are contending traditions any more than, you know, Israel is a fascist country. You know, I'm very, you know, like I'm very, I'm very, you know, I'm at pains to say, you know, my friend uh, Eitan Michaldi, who would be a great guy to have on, you know, wonderful journalist, wrote this book about Israel called Twelve Tribes. And it's about Israel as it actually exists, not as a political football. And it's about Israel as this multicultural society, you know, where people are much like, more likely to kind of in their a- everyday interactions, you know, hang out with people of actual different ethnic traditions, you know, that has these kind of remarkable, you know, aesthetic traditions that are multicultural, you know, these culinary traditions that are multicultural. So as an actual place, you know, it, 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 it has this remarkable pluralism, you know. Uh, even kind of like, you know, this kind of possibility of some better world in which kind of people from different cultures actually get together and interact with each other. But it also has these terrible political traditions, right? And I guess that's a long way of saying that, yes, every nation, you know, does have these national myths that, you know, are the things that kind of allow these diverse groups of people to kind of body forth as a unity, right? And some of them are worse, and some of them are better. And some of them are very sensitive to the dangers of, you know, kind of uh, hyper patriotism, jingoism, and some of them surrender to it, right? I mean, you can be, you know, a patriotic American and conceive of your patriotism as criticism of the worst aspects of America and fulfillment of its best aspects, right? Or you can be a patriot patriotic american and say my country love it or leave it you know uh celebrate our military glories you know say you know um the real americans are like this and the fake americans are like that and i'm going to have my gun to you know protect myself from the fake americans you know that our border has to be you know protective being from being overrun by invaders you know who are actually you know people like you know you and me just our grandparents so you know i feel like i'm you know back at the UFC giving a you know Giving a yakky lecture, but uh, you know that's the way things are in hell. Yeah. So, uh, in in your
0: opinion, then uh, is is the problem? All right. Let's see. I want to make sure I phrase this correctly. What do we miss in our understanding of Israel when mm. we think that the kind of Zionism that is being practiced by the Netanyahu administration right. is the only kind of Zionism? What yeah. happens when we do not know that there was a labor Zionism? A labor Zionism. That basically was the foundation of the state of yeah, Israel. Yeah, but
2: the labor Zionists, you know, were ugly too, right? I mean, you know, the, the, the original—if if the original sin in America was, you know, slavery and decimation of the native population, you know, the original sin of Israel was this slogan, a land without a people for a people without a land, right? I mean, if you read any good, you know, solid history by a great Israeli historian, like you know, someone like— Gershom Gorenberg, you know, it's like some of these guys were incredibly idealistic and they just, you know, like thought, well, um, we're going to we're going to make such a great country that the Arabs are going to want to join it, too. Basically, (laughs) you know, incredibly naive, you know, they'll welcome the fact that we're kind of taking over their land. But there was a lot of bad faith, too, you know, and there was a lot of, um, you know, um, cruelty. Right. I mean, it's an extremely, extremely complicated place and extremely, extremely you know, complicated situation. And then when you when you add in, you know, the fact that like literally the worst thing that ever happened in human history, you know, the the, the mass slaughter of six million Jews, you know, where they were kind of like, you know, poisoned and thrown into ovens, you know, as the rest of the world, you know, look the other way, (laughs) you know, and, you know, I mean, people might know about, you know, um, the USS St. Louis, right? So you're familiar with that, Chuck?
0: That's escaping me right now.
2: Yeah. The USS St. Louis was, I don't remember what year it was. I think it might've been like 1940 or something like that. Uh, it was a um, ship that some relief agency managed to pack with uh, Jews from Germany. And there, I think there was like 800 Jews. And they showed up on the coast of Miami. And basically this went all the way up to the president, went all the way up to Roosevelt. And he's like, no, we're not letting these, these invaders in basically. Uh, there was a ton of anti-Semitism in America, right? Uh, when they less... turned away
0: from several ports too. Several ports, and they tried to get into Canada, I think too. Tried to
2: get into Canada. Canada had no interest in taking yeah. them. Basically, the the, the coast guard, you know, was told if, if anyone tries to swim for it, you're to arrest them and you know return them to Germany. Yeah, and all these people were returned to Germany and slaughtered, right? So that's the moral con- context for you know, um, you know the the final push that created the state of israel right it was like these people need, these people very practically all these refugees need a place to live right and uh you know at the same time as um you know creating a human rights catastrophe in the establishment you know of the state right i mean if the rest of the world had said sure you know we'll each take you know whatever like you know five hundred thousand jews you know, just like, you know, if, if you know, there's some kind of like kind of sensible, you know, kind of all the governors of the states, you know, of America under the leadership of a president said, yeah, we'll each take, you know, you know, 50,000, you know, Venezuelan refugees, right, instead of just, you know, letting them, you know, like swim across the river, right, and have, you know, Governor Abbott, you know, like um bind them up in razor wire, you know, and stick them on, you know, buses and planes to go to liberal states in order to troll them, right? Um, you know, we, we would be talking about a, a different situation. Tragically, you know, um, the people in Israel, uh, you know, and then another, you know, another part of this history is that the people who um, ended up being kind of the hegemonic uh, leaders of the state of Israel were all European Jews, and uh, there were lots of Jews who were expelled, right, and, and also very, you know, cruel and and long, you know, kind of uh, ways by Arab states, like you know the Iraq, Iran, Egypt, and they're called Herodim, you know, they're basically like non-white Jews, and they were treated as second-class citizens in Israel for decades, right. Um, basically treated as, you know, cheap labor, you know, had, you know, the same civil rights, but, you know, kind of not the same civil rights. And they became the constituency for Benjamin Netanyahu's, you know, Likud party and Begin's Likud party. Um, so, you know, there <laughs> there's a lot of bad guys in this story. Uh, you know, at the same time as, you know, the good guys, you know, were just kind of vanquished there's very little left in israel right now it's uh you know so i mean you can see why someone like me who grew up in this kind of zionist world just kind of avoided the subject
0: (laughs) So, you were mentioning looking the other way with the St. Louis, looking the other way with the Holocaust. Uh, We were looking the other way for the last 30, 40, whatever, how many years you want to say it, with Gaza and its open-air prison. You write about in your article that we'll talk about later, about Kissinger, about how the United States uh, looked the other way when it came to the Iranian Revolution. Yeah, I know. So, how much is looking the other way, either a strategy or a history of (laughs) the US foreign
2: policy? Yeah. uh, or human foreign policy right i mean that's where you know it's like you really need these kind of like you know visionary leaders who can basically you know pull people to their better natures instead of their worst natures you know um looking the other way you know i mean like one of the things i mentioned in my um israel piece you know comparing um the culture of Israel kind of looking the other way when it came to this, you know, literally fascist tradition. When I say literally fascist, they call themselves fascists, right? I'm not like, that's not a slur. They said, you know, we are, we are the Jews who support fascism. You know, it's like there's a mag. you know, they, they formed a, like a maritime academy. You know, the revisionists, they had these really weird myths. Like everything bad in Judaism was, they, that they consider bad were caused by the fact that we'd been denied our, you know, kind of our war, war, warlord state, you know, that they wanted Israel to be. So like one of the things they felt considered really bad in Judaism was the fact that Jews argue so much. <laughs> you know and read so many books you know, all the stuff you know that, that that like you know like we were humane you know I mean literally literally they thought that the whole tradition of rabbinic learning in which like people sit around and read texts and argue about morality was like terrible <laughs> which is really funny I mean that's the most repressed part I mean kind of like they have this so I, I came into this Chuck I wanted to learn more about revisionism because I was vaguely aware of it right and so I, I found like an academic monograph on the subject that came out in 2005. And the first thing the book says is no one writes about this. <laughs> but I mean, it was this huge freaking deal. And, you know, like the ideas they had, some of them were crazy. Jabotinsky followed this um, philosophical doctrine called monism, in which he believed that in a healthy state, right, in this kind of very fascist way in which the state had this kind of unity with the leader and the land, you know, and, and you know, like violence, That everyone would have the same opinion on everything, (laughs) which is so funny because like the most cliche Jew, you know, Jewish, you know, kind of Jewish joke is two Jews, three opinions, right? So talk about repression, right? And so I compared it to, you know, it's like basically the generations of Americans who learned about slavery from Gone with the Wind, you know, which the slaves are like, you know, horrified that the evil Yankees are going to like, you know, and, you know, are going to, you know, attack, attack the plantation. And, you know, they're not going to be able to be slaves anymore. I mean, that was literally what what, you know, generations of Americans learned, you know, in their popular culture, in their textbooks and all the rest. Um Anyway,
0: yeah, that came up in a conversation uh, last week with Amy Cooter, a sociologist who has a new book out. Oh yeah, I uh,
2: saw that. Yeah. Yeah,
0: and uh, yeah, so she was saying the exact same thing within the militia movements yeah. that they view something like Gone with the Wind as a documentary. They what? Uh, and she was mentioning a book called uh, John Wayne and Jesus. Oh,
2: that's a great book. You should have her on.
0: That's what she's saying as well. Dumez. So you meant you mentioned uh, a book by uh, Let's see.
2: That's a, that's you know that's an interesting thing that that woman uh, Catherine Dumez, I think. Yeah. Her book um, uh, between John. Wayne and Jesus has become a sensation in like evangelical circles people want to do better a lot of people you know but they're kind of trapped by you know these these kind of incumbent traditions you know uh but you know it's 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 yeah well,
0: anyway. <laughs> you, met, you mentioned uh, the book by uh, historian Aaron Kaplan. That's the book. The yeah. Jewish Radical Right Revisionist Zionism and Its Ideological Legacy. And you cite Kaplan writing Revisionism was first and foremost an attack on modernity, an attempt to uh, revise the course of Jewish history and release it from the hands of the champions of such de- ideals as progress rationality, and universal rights. Is right. fascism best understood as an attack on modernity more than a desire for a nostalgic past that never existed? Or is that attack on modernity grounded in that belief in the n- nostalgic but mythical past?
2: Wow, man. You're, you're getting to the graduate seminar level See, once again, look at Chuck. Yes,
0: I know. Yeah, and I never I think, even got one past an undergrad degree. So. Yeah.
2: It's interesting, right? I mean, if you you know go to Asheville, North Carolina you know, which is this kind of like hippie Appalachian town, and you learn, you know, the, the traditions of basket weaving as practiced by slaves, right? This like wonderful, you know, American craft tradition, and you try to leave this simple life in which, you know, you're self-sustaining, blah, 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 blah. You're obviously kind of, you know, you know trying to go back to the past, but you're obviously also not a fascist, right? The, the past in fascism is a very specific kind of fas- past and it's very specifically, you know, mythic. You know, like there's this guy on uh, The Daily Show who, you know, um, Jordan Klemperer. You know, and he runs around and these are very popular videos. And he'll go to Trump rallies and he'll say, you know, oh, make America great again. When was America great? You know, and then they'll laugh at people for saying, oh, well, they were great. And, you know, it was great in the 1950s or it was great in the blah, blah, blah. And then they'll be like, what about, you know, and then someone will say that was great in the 1950s. And people will be like, you know, Klemper will be like, uh, well, you know, black people couldn't vote in the 1950s. And they're like, oh, yeah, I You know, but the point is, there is no time. There is no period. There's no, you know, like people are not like, you know, kind of like reading history and saying, this is the time I want to go back to. You know, it's all a mythic, you know, plenitude. It's, you know, the plenitude of the womb. You know, it's just like, kind of like, it's this kind of fantasy of a time and a place where there's no conflict, you know, where there is no difference, right? Where there's um, no um, strife, right? Uh, You know, it's kind of like, what you locate in the past is what kind of like an old-fashioned revolutionary Marxist would kind of recognize as kind of after the revolution, right? So it's a return to a mythic past, right? And since it's impossible, right? Since there's there's no way to return to this, this world in which, you know, there are no problems, right? Um, it can't be solved, right? It can't happen, right? So it just makes people angrier and angrier and angrier. And, you know, it's one of the reasons why when right-wingers actually achieve power, they get even angrier, you know, they get even more authoritarian because the things their followers demand and their, their leaders promise, you know, cannot be achieved, right? So it's, 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 it's not like, you know, like Netanyahu, you know, taking over the government, you know, made the people who believe in him, you know, feel like, oh, we finally achieved something, right? It just kind of creates this, this sense of lack and anger, and you know, it's, it's 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 it's. I like the word infernal because it's like the worse it gets, the worse it gets, right? So you you get like a, a leader like Netanyahu, and he can always say the reason we have not achieved this plenitude is because of the aliens, you know, the bad guys, you know, the invaders, uh, the liberals, the modernists, and you know, meanwhile he's committing crimes, you know, he's literally stealing from the state, and he's saying. You know, I am your retribution. They really are going after me because they're going after you, right? And then you get into the whole cult of personality that fascism has, right? The idea that there's this exemplary person who, you know, all meaning and law and decency uh, and victory comes from, you know, the person, not the law, right? That's Trump. You know, that's Netanyahu. You know, that's Mussolini, right? It's the Fuhrer right? It's 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 the, the idea that the only reason uh, people are against this person is because they're against what he represents, which is this return to this magic place that doesn't really exist, you know. So when 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 Kaplan says, you know, that the the revisionists, you know, opposed, you know, modernity, you know, they were very explicit. They had lot. they were smart people, right? They wrote books. They wrote novels. They wrote poems. They wrote books of theory, and the ideas were, you know, there was this mythical time in which everything was great, in which you know the Jews were in charge of, you know, their own land, and it was full of just bizarre, fantastical stuff. You know, it's like the most smart people can come up with the most ridiculous ideas. The craziest part was, he talked when, when 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 Jabotinsky wrote about Hebrew. And he said that, like, you know, um, Hebrew didn't sound like Arabic. right? If you know anything about Hebrew and Arabic, they're basically the same language. It's the classic, you know, narcissism of small differences. You know, all the roots are the same. You know, all the sounds are the same. But he's like, oh, all those guttural, guttural sounds of Arabic, that had nothing to do with the original Hebrew. And if we recover the original Hebrew, which, sound, which sounded more like Italian, <laughs> you know, it's so strange, you know. But that's what you get into once you kind of wed yourself to this mythic notion it's you know it's the same way you know you know like you know trump saying you know if i get into power you know in 2016 you know we'll just have this wonderful healthcare system <laughs> that'll just magically make everyone you know it's, it's magic right it's magic thinking and that's where the modernity gets in right because modernity is hard you know it's like modernity means you have to form your own identity you you, you know you you grow up and you have to decide what you, you're going to do when you grow up. You know, it's like pre-modern world. You didn't do that. Right. I mean, you were kind of like assigned a place and it was terrible if you were an outsider. But if you're kind of, you know, someone within, you know, the broad mainstream of your you know tribe, you know, you didn't have to worry about much, you know.
0: We are speaking with historian Rick Perlstein He recently posted the articles The Neglected History of the State of Israel As well as Kissinger Revealed At the American Prospect At his Infernal Triangle column You can find all of that writing right now By going to prospect.org In that interview that you mentioned earlier Chotner asked uh, this settler movement leader uh, So rights are not some sort of universal thing That every person has There's something that uh, you can win or lose The settler answered that's correct Chotner followed up when you see Palestinian children dying, what's your emotional reaction as a human being?" She, the leader of the militant West Bank Settler Movement, replied, "'I go by a b- very basic law of, uh, human law of nature. My children are prior to the children of the enemy, period. They are first. My children are first.' Chotner responded with incredulity, saying we are talking about children. I don't know if the law of nature is what we need to be looking at here. The settler, nonplussed, repeated herself. I say, my children are first. Is there an inevitability within the settler movement that it's one or the other—their babies dying or ours?
2: Well, the settler movement is just a very perverse and dangerous political movement, and you know, it's it's a tragic one um, because this is the 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 West Bank settlements are really. That's the part where, kind of the the traditional, you know, labor Zionists who were in charge when, you know, Israel was attacked and won a war in six days and suddenly ended up with all this land, and you know, basically the international community said, "We don't do that anymore. You don't get to conquer land because you win a war," and Israel said, "No, we're just gonna keep this land." And there's all kinds of. There's a wonderful uh, book by my friend Gershom Gorenberg called "The Accidental Empire," right. And, you know, he talks about how, you know, the the, the labor Zionists of the time, you know, just kind of bumbled, stumbled into this commitment to kind of occupying those lands. And a lot of it, you know, was kind of like... There's this really weird dynamic in Israel where uh, the labor people are not—this is another thing. The the religious factor in Israel is just super strange and super interesting because the people who founded Israel were not religious. They were anti-religious. They were like militantly secular. They're like, yes, the Jewish people are this really—our peoplehood is, is, is sacrosanct. It's very important. But religion was our grandparents' thing right we're we're liberated from that and if if anything their, li- their their religion was socialism but they always had this kind of guilt <laughs> you know that they weren't that, that the people who were the real jews were the religious jews so when the religious jews in 1967 said well this is where all our forefathers you know our patriarchs are the, the, the tomb of the patriarchs you know that was kind of seductive you know to these secularists right uh and then you, you, you so you get these, you know Settlements coming in, and like I said, I'm not an expert on this. I'm probably getting a lot of it wrong. You know, I'm stumbling my way through it too. But you know, once, once you know, Menachem Begin became the prime minister in 1977, 1977. His his passion was this revisionist idea that this belong this land belongs to us this idea of greater israel right that like israel without this conquered military territory is this kind of like body without a limb right and the, you know one of the tragedies of that is you know menachem begin did in fact do this remarkable thing and sign a peace treaty with egypt but uh you know just like a good university of chicago guy i'm going to reckon- recommend another book there's another and I loved seeing Chucky's like writing these book titles down like a maniac.
0: Because <laughs> <laughs> uh, Aton and Gershon have both been on the show before, yeah. so yeah, keep
2: going. Yeah. And there's another guy, you know, Lawrence Wright, who's a you know great journalist. Who, you know, the Looming Tower, and he wrote the great book on Scientology, just a wonderful, wonderful resource. But he wrote a really good short book on the Camp David Accords in you know 1978, when you know Jimmy Carter <laughs> literally. Can you imagine like a president like just he he did this a bunch of times, just kind of like leaving Washington <laughs> for Camp David for like two weeks and just kind of like stopping being president and doing this one thing, he, 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 he got Menachem Begin in, in, uh, from Israel and Anwar Sadat from Egypt to sit together and decide that they were going to form a peace treaty. And that, that's what gave Egypt back the Sinai Peninsula. But you know, basic, the basic argument of the book is that this was kind of a long game strategy for, for Menachem Begin to conquer the West Bank, right? It was kind of a distraction game. Uh, because this was seen as, you know, the place where the seat of biblical, you know, kind of biblical Israel. So, you know, they conquer East East Jerusalem, right, which had been formerly, you know, basically an Arab city. You know, they conquer the West Bank. And um, what was the question again?
0: Well, let's move on to the next one. If we skip that, we can just move on to that one. So, so how steeped in? Oh, we were talking about the. uh, 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 Is is it an inevitability of it's our babies Um, or theirs?
2: Our babies are theirs. Well, I mean, I think that's where modernity comes in, right? And it's like, you know, it's like, I really think, you know, like human morality evolves, right? I mean, it's like, you know, like we're not guys with like rocks and clubs, right? I mean, it's like we can see ourselves in the eyes of the other, and that makes us modern people, right? And there are less modern people and more modern people, right? <laughs> uh, so you know, I mean, if you know, like, one of the consequences of you know the absolute terror and horror of World War II, in which you know not only six million Jews died, but you know, I just saw, you know, I just saw, you know, um, Oppenheimer last night. You know, like the, the the nuclear demon was released on the world. Was you began to see these kind of international institutions built? That try to institutionalize the idea that you know every child deserves you know like the same rights right and you know um, it was uh, obviously an ideal honored in the breach right and people are very you know when people you know kind of spout cliches about the international liberal rules based order it's often you know they often do so you know uh, because uh, what 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 they what they you know, give with the one hand, they're going to take away with the other. But, you know, those kind of ideals were written into, you know, international laws and institutions. And, um, you know, when a person does say, you know, children are not innocent, if they are the children of the enemy, because they're going to become terrorists, you know, that is that ad- atavistic, anti-modern thinking, right? And, you know, I, I own this word, pro- you know, proudly, that's why, you know, we have to be liberals, you know? We have to see human rights as universal because the instinct for human beings is to see them as tribal.
0: So you add that, make no mistake, what the settler told Chotner, or Chotner was a uh, doctrine. You then cite Kaplan writing uh, for Jabotinsky, human rights, civil equality, and even political equality could not create harmony among individuals. Only the common ties of blood, history, and language could bring people together. Right. How steeped is revisionism then in eugenics? And do you see that as further evidence of fascistic traits within today's Zionism?
2: Well, I mean, the thing that's really fascinating about <laughs> today's Zionism, you know, kind of the, 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 the heirs of the revision of Zionism, and this is where, you know, like, uh, you know, all these categories are so contingent and subject to change are actually it's a non much more a non-white tradition than a white tradition. So, you know, if you're Israeli and, you know, you're voting for Benjamin Netanyahu and you're saying really nasty things about Arabs, it's probably more likely the case that you are uh, descended from you know, um, people of brown skin than people of white skin, (laughs) you know. So, I mean, I'm not sure really, you know, how eugenics fits in. In fact, one of the most bizarre things about how, you know, badly strange and broken Israeli society is, is there's there's a a discourse now among right-wing, like I say, Herodim, the people who kind of descended from people who were kicked out of Arab countries towards the European Jews that... They had it coming in the Holocaust because they were just a bunch of squishes and wimps, pussies, right? So there's like there's like so much hatred among non-European Jews in Israel that they basically are speaking genocidally about Jews of European origin.
0: <laughs> so why do revisionists hate Yiddish?
2: <laughs> well, actually, someone someone pointed out to me. Um, that the labor scientists kind of hated Yiddish too. Uh, and, you know, it's basically, um, so this concept of diaspora, right? I mean, the kind of Judaism, I don't really identify much with Judaism at all, but the, 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 the part of Judaism I love the most is that basically it wasn't tied to a nation state, that it was diasporic, right? That it provided a way, a model of citizenship of the world, right? So Yiddish is this weird language Uh, that um, is basically an old version of German written in Hebrew characters that has its own unique characteristics that comes from all these people kind of living together and speaking together. And a friend of mine who's a a, a Yiddish scholar pointed out that Yiddish is just as much like German and is just as much its own unique language as Black American English is to standard English, right? Only it's written in a different character it's writing in hebrew characters but it is completely a product of europe and the diaspora right it is a it is a you know yiddish means jewish right so if you listen you, you, if you listen to an, i don't think you'd hear that a lot today but if it used to be when you heard an old person they wouldn't use the word yiddish they would say i speak jewish right so hebrew was the ancient language that was spoken among by jews in the middle east right so there was this big nationalist project of recovering Hebrew, right? I mean Hebrew was kind of like Latin. It was kind of like a dead language, it was a language of religion. So, you know, a lot of, you know, the labor Zionists who came to Israel, you know, they basically saw restoring Hebrew as one of the most important linguistic projects. I mean, you you know this book Imagine Communities by Benedict Anderson, right? It's about how national national cultures are created. By things like literature and newspapers, so a huge part of this project, and it's pretty remarkable. I mean, it's like when you think about it, this dead language became a live language, you know, within our own lifetimes. You know, really after the, you know, kind of with with the rise of the the second wave of Zionism in the twentieth century, you know, going into the statehood period of 1948, created its own literature, but you know, so Yiddish. Um, there's a (laughs) Tom Sam Segev is another great Israeli historian. He wrote a book called The Seventh Million, and it's about kind of like how Israel thinks about the Holocaust. And there's a tradition, you know. I mentioned how you know a lot of the Herodim non-European Jews are contemptuous of European Jews for kind of letting the Holocaust happen. Like you know they weren't tough enough. They were you know they were rabbis. They were sitting around reading books instead of, you know, training with rifles, right? So, you know, that's present in a lot of the Zionist traditions, this sort of distrust and kind of contempt for the European uh, uh, Jewish world, which, you know, did not let itself survive.
0: The Zionism that you learned about, though, when you went to school was labor Zionism. And then what you what we're seeing in uh, with the Zionism... I think
2: it was probably, um, I think a lot of the kind of progressive... Labor aspects were pretty dead by the time I was coming up in the 70s. Oh, because
0: because I, I was I was just wondering if is if there's a diasporic divide between uh, maybe Jews here in the United States and the Zionism that is happening within Israel because uh, oh, the, man, one, that's those so complicated right that I mean, they, they <laughs> learn one kind of Zionism here and that another one is being practiced. The relationship in
2: Israel. between Israel and its kind of American patrons, both kind of like in the kind of the the, the American state. And in kind of the Jewish diaspora is trippy. And that's also surreal and weird. There's a lot of resentment for Americans and American Jews in Israel as these people who just aren't on the front lines, you know, and are just kind of writing Israel these checks, you know. But um, on the other hand, in America, the range of opinions when it comes to Israel among Jews is much narrower than it is in Israel. You know, it's like when I when I to give you an example, when I was about to publish this article and I was about to say, well, Benjamin Netanyahu has fascist roots and maybe even has, you know, fascist kind of qualities himself. I was like, am I going to be lynched for saying this? You know, and so I Googled Benjamin Netanyahu and fascist, and every day in this left wing Israeli paper, (laughs) there's an article about how, you know, Benjamin Netanyahu is a fascist. (laughs) You know, I mean, it's like. You can hear much nastier conversations about Israel and Knesset every day, you know, than you can, you know, among American Jews where this very um, stylized, you know, kind of idealized version of Israel kind of rose up. You know, there's like, uh, you know, like there's this um, kind of folklore that like, you know, a kid goes to, you know, Zionist summer camp. When I like I did, you know, it's basically it wasn't a quote unquote Zionist summer camp. It was just a Jewish summer camp run by the Jewish community center in Milwaukee. And, you know, kind of comes up and this Israel is just kind of portrayed as very sexy, which it is. Right. Very exciting and dynamic, which it is very kind of, um, you know, kind of meaningful. You know, it's a place where there's a lot of purpose. Right. It's like it's it's it it, it captures. Uh, A lot of the feeling of community that, you know, people feel like is missing in their own lives. So that's a pretty seductive thing for a lot of kids growing up in the suburbs. So families have these stories about their kids saying, oh, great, I'm going to Israel. (laughs) And the next thing you know, they have 20 kids and are living in some West Bank town. Right. They took it seriously, you know. Um, So, you know, one of the things that has been, um, you know, but basically the bottom line, you know, uh, to bring it back to what's happening in Gaza now is, right? I mean, this is kind of the full circle. You know, you see people who grew up in this world, they'll post on their Facebook page, I support Israel, right? And, you know, unfortunately, if you say I support Israel, full stop, you know, it's kind of like saying America, right or wrong, you are supporting a government with fascist proclivities that is probably committing a genocide, right? Because you think of Israel in a certain way. As you know, much more you know, kind of humane and pluralist and 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 liberal, you know, than certainly its Arab neighbors that surround it, right? And uh, you're taught that this is your place and these are your people, right? But unfortunately, you know, kind of over the fullness of time, very cynical and evil people in the Israeli government would be able to exploit that to get away with whatever they want. Right.
0: You, you mentioned being on uh, Amy Goodman's uh, Democracy Now, and you're waiting to go on air. And there's an activist, a peace activist, who says, uh, who you know, states that basically this is not the Israel that they knew. This is not Israel. Israel this is, is, not is Judaism. Th- this is not Judaism. This is not the way in which we are supposed to act. That made me uh, think of January sixth and how so many people, like on CNN, were like, "This is not America. This is not this, America. This is not."
2: Yeah, my article after January sixth in the New Republic called, it was called "This Is Us." Right. And so what is what is us? Right. Well, more than that, not That's, what is what yeah. not
0: just what is us, but what do we miss in our understanding again of ourselves when we deny the fact that th- that January 6th wasn't America.
2: Right. Well, this is my big theme. You know, I'm writing this book, you know, The Infernal Triangle, and like the last chapter is, you know, what do we do? You know, what do we do? That's what I'm always, what do we do? How can we, how can we, you know, my shrink is like, what do we do? I'm like, no, let's talk about my, you know, let's talk about my parents. I don't want to, I don't want to, you know, give a political lecture, you know. Um, But, you know, what we do is we realize that the kind of, you know, very fundamental, decent, modern, right, values that we take for granted, whether it's, you know, uh, scientists should be able to, like, you know, arrive at the truth without you know, being told what to think, you know, or that diversity is good, or it's good for a child to form their own identity and not have to do what their parents did. I mean, very, very fundamental things. You know, the idea that, you know, people should not be, you know, um, tribal, right? Just the most basic things that like pretty much most, you know, kind of university educated professional Americans believe are political, right? You cannot take them for granted. And the thing you know that I've learned the most basic thing that I've learned studying the right basically studying the right since the 50s I haven't been studying I've not me studying them since the 50s me studying them since the 90s but going back to the 50s is that they taught every conservative person who had kind of conservative cultural social you know Psychological proclivities, whether they were, you know, members of Orthodox religious sects, or military-minded people, or police-minded people, or free-market business uh, people, um, that the values they took for granted cannot be taken for granted and have to be defended politically in the political system. So every preacher became like a precinct captain, you know. Well every let i mentioned therapists shrinks right every therapist every shrink you know who's worth their salt probably has very liberal values right but they don't say to themselves oh the american psychiatric association the american psychological association you know has to be a political organization defending the values of you know human full human spiritual and moral and psychological development right no, no, no. Shrink is going to be say I have to be a precinct captain and get people out to vote. It's 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 an absurdity, right? And there's lots of reasons for that, right? But like you know, until people who you know kind of share our values and whether they they see themselves as leftists or Marxists and liberals or centrists or whatever, right? They have to see this as a struggle that involves voting, that involves getting politicians who share their values. And, you know, I mean that's where the Democratic Party comes in. You know, the Democratic Party doesn't see this as, you know, basically we're defending values, you know, that could go away, you know, that could be superseded, you know, by the anti modernists, right? They're just like, we'll just kind of solve these technical problems using expertise, right? Uh, and there is no red America and there is no blue America. And if we meet people halfway, that will make America a better place. No, probably meeting them halfway will just make it easier for them to punch you in the nose, right? (laughs) So it's a paradox, right? I mean, it's like, you know, you can't tolerate intolerance, right?
0: What do you think is missed in the news coverage of the war in Gaza, of what is taking place in Gaza right now, when the the media-consuming audience doesn't have the context of knowing about what zionist revisionism is and how it is exists today
2: yeah i mean like i said at the beginning i've I've gotten um i don't know i don't remember if this is on the air or not but it's important for people to know is that i writing this stuff that you're hearing me talk about i got an overwhelming overwhelming barrage of of gratitude and um either people telling me their own stories or people saying this this matches the world I don't uh, that I see but don't have the language to talk about and one of the most remarkable letters I got was from an Israeli woman who said you know the tragic thing is you don't have to like understand revisionism or this history to know that in Israel the vast majority of the population thinks like this they think in terms about the Arabs that they live around that they're less than, and that if you say all Arabs deserve civil rights, let alone national aspirations, uh, most people will ostracize you, right? That this is is a society that has fallen to—I mean, if you want, Chuck, I could read this letter over the air.
0: You have it in front of you right now? I I do. All right. Yes, please do. Maybe we should make
2: that like our kind of denouement because it's a very powerful testament. And it's, you know, it's only one person, right?
0: Right. But I still want to get to your Kissinger writing too. Oh,
2: okay. (laughs) Go ahead. Quickly, quickly, because I want to get home.
0: Yeah, I I understand.
2: Uh, As a a Jewish Israeli that was born and has lived here my whole life, I can personally attest that many of, this is the woman uh, Weiss, this is the the settler, uh, Weiss's statements are not at all controversial or even noteworthy among Jewish Israelis. This is true of the idea that, rights are not, idea that rights are not universal and inherent and can be won or lost, and for the lack of empathy regarding the suffering of Palestinian children, or any non-Jewish children for that matter. It is hard to describe the breadth and depth of support for these views in Jewish Israeli society. In fact, anyone who tries to articulate a different perspective is likely to be labeled an extremist, a supporter of terrorism, and possibly an anti-Semite. Semi- Yes, even if they are Jewish. I personally would never dare to assert the idea of inalienable rights. Um, uh, wow, it goes on and on. I, I, uh, uh, inalienable rights are empathy for Palestinian children, unless it's in the company of people I know who are sympathetic. This is reflected in Israeli media coverage, which aside from one minor exception, the Haaretz newspaper, which is read by a few people, avoids any depiction of Palestinian suffering the purpose is not to shield the public from the consequences of military action. Israeli media does this because people consider it a betrayal to imply that Palestinian death and pain is unfortunate, even if this recognition is packaged with strident support for and justification of the war. They will simply stop reading, listening, and viewing any outlet which covers what is happening to Palestinian citizens.
0: Man, that is intense. Yeah, it's that's really intense. Freaking
2: intense. And this is like, you know, and this is like, unfortunately, a lot of well-intentioned, decent American Jews sure. you know, will put up on their Facebook page, I support Israel. Yeah. And, you know, what are they supporting? You know, instead of saying, I critically support Israel, <laughs> or I support the best parts of Israel, or Israel can do better, right? It's seen as an us versus them tribal thing.
0: Your new article at The Prospect is Kissinger revealed the former Secretary of State is responsible for virtually every American geopolitical disaster of the past half century. What Kissinger was really focused on was this idea of stability. So how much is the world's current instability, the legacy of Henry Kissinger?
2: Yeah, quickly kind of going through it. Um, Part of the way he was going to create stability was he saw... You know the Soviet Union, uh, in you know completely conventional Cold War terms, and uh, one of the ways that America had sought to kind of check its influence was by starting this war in Vietnam, a proxy war, right? And by the time Henry Kissinger entered the Nixon administration, the, the Vietnam was a disaster. So like they came up with something called the Nixon Doctrine, which basically said we'll just give weapons to you know other states in order to you know check you know the ambitions of the Soviet Union and you know one of the main beneficiaries beneficiaries of this was the Shah of Iran who you know as your listeners know was you know brought to power in an American coup in 1953 you know run by the England and the CIA and so they basically just gave him whatever he wanted and looked the other way whenever he did anything bad And, you know, basically, long story short, that was the policy that, you know, created the conditions for the Iranian Revolution, which was the watershed for, you know, the rise of militant Islamism, you know, around the world, right? So, you know, I have this statement saying if, you know, like, basically, you know, the idea that, you know, like, again, the anti-modernist, you know, kind of idea that redemptive violence against, you know, the evils of the West, you know, which is... You know, responsible for you know nine eleven and ISIS and you know Iran's you know proxy expansionism and the Houthis and you know um, Syria, you know the civil war in Syria. You know Henry Kissinger bears a responsibility for that, for you know propping up evil Arab regimes and for not appreciating also that this was a force in the world. You know that that that, that Islamism was just completely ignored by the security establishment, and then. You know, when it comes to his idea for settling the Vietnam War, the idea was basically to form warm, cordial, detente like relationships with Russia, right, Soviet Union, which involved, you know, nuclear arms concessions, which were great on their own terms, right? Uh, And an opening to China, which in many ways was good on its own terms because before Nixon went to China, you know, basically we looked at China like we look at Iran, you know? So that was probably a step forward for world peace, but the idea was that I didn't explain this necessarily in any detail in the article, but that uh, the reason there was a there was there was a civil war in Vietnam was that China and the Soviet Union were sponsoring it to advance world communism. And if we were nice enough to China and the Soviet Union, they would put pressure on the Vietnamese, the North Vietnamese to basically um surrender to the United States. And that was nonsense because you know the sources of the Vietnam War were indigenous. You know it wasn't this kind of imperial project from the rest of the communist world, and it didn't work. You know <laughs> the communists won the Vietnam War, and uh, if your goal is stability, will Southeast Asia become a charnel house after the Vietnam War ended? You know I mean it's like you had you know the, the the genocide in Cambodia. You know you had. Um, Massive regional civil war in 1978 and 1979. So everything that you know, Henry Kissinger did to kind of move the global chess pieces. They were talking about like a generational structure of peace. You know that would kind of like you know this kind of like Westphalian peace, like 1815. That would you know basically you know was kept Europe mostly war free for, for most of the, you know, the the nineteenth the and early twentieth century until World War One. That's what Kissinger was believed to be creating. And I didn't go too much into the details of this. Um but you know, and he was celebrated for this. You know, I quote the most nonsense things that were written about him and Making the President in nineteen seventy two, where people were like walking up to him on the beach and thanking him for creating world peace. Well, you know, I mean very simply he didn't create world peace. The world is you know, much less peaceful than he was when he came along. So, you know, in addition to all the terrible human rights abuses he did that were kind of justified, you know, by this idea that he was creating stability, you know, I could have used another thousand words, Chuck. That's the reason I write <laughs> these thousand page uh, books. Uh, you know, so basically, he they, they, they you know, Kissinger was a failure on his own terms. And, you know, for some reason that wasn't, you know, something that people saw fit to point out in its obituaries, most of which you know were really quite nasty. <laughs> you right. Uh, he so- lost he lost the war of history.
0: Yeah, and so that leads us to the question from hell. We are speaking with with infernal triangle columnist at the Prospect historian Rick Perlstein who recently posted the articles The Neglected History of the State of Israel as well as Kissinger Revealed. You can find all of his columns at prospect.org. And you can follow him on Twitter at Rick Perlstein. So, our final question for you, as we do with all of our guests, is the question from hell. The question we hate to ask, you may hate to answer, or our audience will hate your response. You write that it caused quite a stir when uh, Biden administration officials, Tony Blinken, Kissinger's successor as Secretary of State, and Samantha Powers, the uh, USAID administrator, fatted Kat- Kissinger one in a series of 100th birthday parties. Also, Hillary Clinton, a successor Secretary of State, was uh, buddies with him one hopes this in ad- ad- m- Uh, This admiration from the Democratic foreign policy elite does not owe to Kissinger's remarkable inability to cause the deaths of millions without any visible remorse, statecraft being an ugly business and all. But really, beyond that, that's just not all that much there to grab onto. Kissinger was terrible, and at his funeral, they made a really big deal about how he was a great statesman and and brought about peace, like you were saying. So what does that tell you about the current state of the State Department of U.S. Foreign Policy? policy, and more importantly, maybe, uh, you know, the use of power by Nixon and Kissinger was brutal. Illegal wars leading to massive numbers of civilian deaths. Nick Terse argued on our show Uh, it was likely in the millions. Does uh, Kissinger's legacy, how much does it still hold sway in uh, U.S. foreign policy, and is it possible to de-Kissinger U.S. foreign policy?
2: Oh man, that is the hardest of all your hard questions. <laughs> it's like, I can imagine an America that has, you know, kind of like, you know, it's it's really kind of a, a tough road to hoe and it's a generational project that has, you know, much more humane domestic policies, you know. Uh, it's very hard for me to imagine um, America to kind of climb down from its kind of quasi-imperial, you know, uh, role Uh so, um, you know, I believe that children are our future. <laughs> uh, and, uh, you know, if we, um, survive, uh, you know, like, uh, sinking into the sea, you know, uh, maybe we can kind of, uh, create some kind of, uh, just and progressive international order, but, uh. Uh, it'll take minds much uh, wiser than mine to achieve it
0: <laughs> well on that note Rick do you want to hang out for the re- for the question from hell or do you got to get going
2: no, I, can, I can hang out I just won't be able to write for the rest of the day because you go too deep <laughs>
0: I apologize to for sit that sit
2: around and read mystery novels
0: Our, what's the mystery novel you're reading
2: I'm not reading a miss. <laughs> <laughs> I'm reading. A, I'm reading a book about from 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 2012 about uh, evangelical uh, baby stealing rings.
0: <laughs> oh, really? What's the book?
2: Oh, that's a good one. Catherine Joyce. Uh, uh, it's called um, the baby Ca- the baby catchers or the child catchers. She's the uh, she's the um, investigative editor in these times.
0: Oh, awesome. I should check that out. We uh, just spoke with Rick Perlstein. Again, uh, you can follow Rick at Rick Perlstein on X, and you can find all of his writing at prospect.org. So let's get the mic over to Chris. Chris, live from the United States where the press has the freedom to be propaganda, this is hell. If our talk with Rick helped you better understand not only the destruction of Gaza, but the criminal history of Henry Kissinger. So uh, uh, I don't know. Show your support. Show your appreciation by becoming a subscriber to our bonus Patreon podcast at patreon.com slash thisishell Or you can show your support for completely listener-supported This Is Hell by visiting thisishell.com and clicking on support On Patreon this week, I have finally realized that I am definitely an abolitionist, but there's a difficulty there There are plenty of practices, systems, and institutions I would like to throw on the trash heap and into the dustbin of history But, you know There's always consequences The problem with all this stuff is consequences Actions cause consequences And unlike the US government, its foreign policy Or Silicon Valley and its Creations it launches on the world And the actions of capitalists everywhere I believe consequences do matter And that I should be held accountable For my actions The irresponsibility with which so much of our cruel world Has been foisted upon us Without any consideration of its impact Is incredible as in it is hard to believe what has been done to us all in the world of word of profit and so few have been held to answer for the disasters often deadly disasters they have caused disasters from which they have benefited while others who are invisible and out of sight and out of mind are suddenly somebody else is reaping in the riches at their expense so i'm going to talk about abolitionism my issues with abolitionism what i want to have abolished in there. it's on Patreon tomorrow Also on Patreon last week We uh, asked Patreon patrons That after they listened to last week's 2004 talk With Yuri of Neri To tell us if the following week This week they wanted to hear another interview We did with Yuri two years later in 2006 The reason we asked is Because when Yuri was on the show We were told that uh, while he has a great English vocabulary, a better vocabulary than I do, he does have a very strong and heavy accent. However, back in the day not one person cared as the content of what Yuri had to say was so engaging that his accent did not matter to them. So we asked Patreon patrons, do you want to hear back-to-back conversations with Yuri? And they told us Tom H. said Yes, more Yuri John with no H. said absolutely more Yuri Past guest uh, Paulo Sarbellos Said more Yuri And a better pronunciation of his name uh, Public Universal uh, Comrade Also told us yes, please To more Yuri So on the advice of Patreon patrons We will be playing our July 29th, 2006 Talk with Yuri Avneri And as I explained last week He's a former Israeli soldier, Knesset member And leading Israeli police activist. Who spoke with us a couple of times From uh, Israel He fought in the 1948 Arab-Israeli war With the Irgun paramilitary group Alongside former Israeli general And Prime Minister Ariel Sharon And the other people that we mentioned earlier today Menachem Begin as well Yuri boldly stated in our conversation That the group he participated in Irgun was in fact a terrorist group He actually served twice in the Knesset, from 65 to 73 and 77 to 81. He also then formed the uh, Israeli peace movement called Gush Shalom. But the only way you can hear a second conversation with Yuri, as well as my desire to be an abolitionist, and what I want to abolish, is by subscribing at patreon.com slash thisishell. So Chris, what is this week's question from hell, and how have our Patreon patrons responded and any other of the social media platforms where we still have some answers lingering?
1: A uh, question from hell is Why do birds suddenly appear every time you are near?
0: <laughs> Thanks to listener Rick P for that yeah. suggestion of a question from hell.
1: Well, we got some answers on Discord. Okay. And uh, let's see here. Spacey wrote, They're deeply narcissistic. <laughs> okay. And uh, Kim G answered with, They are trying to pluck out the earthworm now burrowed in my head. <laughs> Sarah wrote, probably because of the birdseed I threw everywhere. (laughs) Okay. Cam wrote, I don't know, but the crows, crows, crows just won't ever leave me be verily, warily, scarily, airily, Crows are so crappy. <laughs> nice. I said that without stumbling. I'm proud of yeah. myself. Yeah, it was pretty good. <laughs> and TikTok wrote For I am the logos and the word, the bu- 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 bird, bird, bird. Bird it's is the, the word. word. Praise oh. Lux interior. Oh, good Lord. All right, what's the question from Elle again? And tell us how our listeners are responding on Patreon. Oh, yeah, of course. Uh, question from hell is why do birds suddenly appear every time you are near (laughs) and let's see here on patreon we have uh
0: the question itself makes me giggle
1: uh let's see on patreon we got um mason wiss who wrote i hang out with prometheus all right that's a good reason and then we also got tom who wrote The appearance of the birds was not sudden, the birds were always there, it's your realization of their presence that is sudden. Uh, I like
0: that, I like that, that's very good. The butterfly
1: was dreaming he was human. Yes, I like that, very good. Nate the Great wrote, because I ate the worm. All right. Nos Nos Refej wrote, coincidence. (laughs) Justin Mason wrote, I cannot explain, the wake of buzzards above I feel just fine.
0: I think that's a haiku.
1: Hmm. Uh, <laughs> Daphne Manuela wrote, or Daphne Underscore Manuela wrote, "It's the self-led weaned baby trail."
0: Well, well, that's gross. Go ahead. I've been on that self that baby trail. It's disgusting.
1: Yum. Uh, <laughs> Old Grouch wrote, "They are my guardians. Been over. Been here ever since Hitchcock died. Don't make any sudden movements." All right. And as wrote, I have electrolytes. <laughs> and uh, let's see if you have anything on face. Yeah, I think it's to defecate on us because everything is going to heck.
0: Yes, yes, that's another possibility so as that, well.
1: That's not a pleasant experience. <laughs>
0: no, and somebody even talks about that <laughs> in uh, one of the responses.
1: So let's see here. We might have some newer answers on uh, Welcome to the Hellhole." All right. And uh, let's see here. One would be... Uh, Dave Gephardt answered with a YouTube video from a song called by Jim O'Rourke, Close to You. All right. Um, Cherry Blacktail Deer wrote, BURBS. <laughs> okay. B I R B
0: S. Don't know what that is either.
1: Oh, know.
2: that's right. Birds aren't
0: real. Oh, that's right.
2: They aren't birds. They're government surveillance.
1: That's right. Uh, uh, Jack Block wrote, I smell of death. They're vultures. Okay. Neil Cohen wrote, must be my W O R M personality.
0: Warm personality. Good yeah. lord. Neil C. So disappointing. <laughs> uh,
1: Quafka Smith wrote, you're asking about the birds, not the cattle.
0: No, he's very into the cattle. She, they are very into the cattle that they walk by every day. It's pretty intense videos and pictures that he sh- shares of these uh, Scottish cat, cattle. Pretty incredible. Any more?
1: No, that's all we got for now. All right, now.
0: so the answers I liked the most were on Patreon, John C. saying, To the question, Why do birds suddenly appear when you are near? John C. says, It's my cologne, Abra-cadaver. Jen D. saying, Just like me, they long to be free of capitalism. Wojciech saying, I'm trapped in a Hitchcock movie. Garrett S. saying on Facebook, Because this is my grandfather His grandfather is Robert Great grandfather, sorry Robert Stroud The Birdman of Alcatraz Which is crazy Fabio says those aren't birds They are government surveillance units So any of those answers really stand out to you Uh, You, Chris, or Rick Any of those answers you really liked?
2: Yeah, I think you should have the... um
0: birds aren't real guy on. Huh? he's really smart <laughs> the birds aren't real guy <laughs> what about you chris any really stand out to you
2: uh, my
1: gut goes with the surveillance that fascinates yeah, me wins. so yeah.
0: yeah yeah so who's who was the one on that one do you remember
1: Fabio.
0: Oh yeah, Fabio, Fabio, thank you very much uh, Those aren't birds, they are government surveillance units You are the winner of this week's Question from Hell All you have to do is tell us which piece of This Is Hell merchandise you want We'll get it into the mail to you post-haste And uh, send us your mailing address when you tell us which kind of piece you want as well So uh, that, so, congratulations And my answer to this week's Question from Hell Why do birds suddenly appear every time you are near? Uh, as the question is asked of me, meaning birds suddenly appear in my presence It's because someone keeps dumping bags full of pounds full of bird feed on the sidewalk right by the corner store where I get lottery tickets sometimes she dumps it right outside the door of the building where she lives forcing other tenants to step over several inches tall mountain of bird feed that has led to an explosion in the pigeon population in the neighborhood at times you can see not one but two flocks of hundreds of pigeons flying around the intersection over here so why do birds suddenly appear when i am near it's because the person who is dumping feed cannot read the sign the city put under her window stating do not feed pigeons doing so comes with a 500 dollars fine or what i'm betting she does not really give a flying f and nobody's gonna stop her from feeding her pigeons so chris who
1: are who is our confirmed guest for monday's show palestinian writer journalist and political researcher hamza ali shah will join us to talk about his jacobin article western government share responsibility for israel's crimes as well as his writing at declassified uk including beheaded babies how UK media reported Israel's fake news as fact.
0: <sighs> I am your bitter, blind, broke, gap radio show podcast live streaming host, Chuck Mertz. Thanks to Rick Perlstein t- for being our guest today. Thanks to Chris coolfan for producing This Is Hell Office Hours. Don't forget, they happen every Wednesday night at the bar downstairs from us, Cary's Lounge, 2251 West Devon Avenue in Chicago's Westridge neighborhood. It's our weekly meet and greet that's really a drink and think. This Is Hell Office Hours at Cary's Lounge, 2251 West Devon Avenue, Chicago Westridge neighborhood every Wednesday, no matter the weather. See, we told you so. This is hell.
1: My demon is on my butt. Uh. My demon talks to me in profanity like a cellar. And my demon tries to knock me down. And my demon tries to put me on a hell ride. Thank you for listening to This Is Hell. For more Interview Hell, and to support the show, visit thisishell.com.